Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Mushrooms are probably among the least understood foods that we eat. Most of us enjoy cooking and eating them, but don't really know where they come from or how they're grown. So we've invited two mushroom farmers to our show today to tell us about them. Dimitri Pappas of Hudson Valley Mushrooms in Patterson, New York, and Steve Gabriel of Wellspring Forest Farm in Mecklenburg, New York. Steve is also the co-author of a book published by Chelsea Green called Farming the Woods, an integrated permaculture approach to growing food and medicinals in temperate forests. And I'm very pleased to welcome both of them to our show. Hello. Hello, Leonard. Thanks yeah, for hi. having us on. Hi there. It's great to be here. Now, Dimitri, haven't you and your wife, t t is it Tamara or Tamara? T Tamara, yeah, I guess. Tamara, been Tamara like Tamara. <laughs> you, you, you and your wife, Tamara, have been running your mushroom farm just since 2015. What were you doing before that? And why did you decide to go into the into mushroom farming? Well, Leonard, we uh, <clears throat> we both have full-time jobs because being a mushroom farmer doesn't always pay all the bills, but um, we decided to go into mushrooms. I was grew up in the city, but I've been fascinated by mushrooms, uh, especially since moving up to Putnam County, where mushrooms grow everywhere, all different types. And uh, in 2000, a little before 2015, I... Uh, went to some mushroom classes and learned how to grow mushrooms and since 2015 we've been doing it more and more and really enjoy it and you say that uh that the area around patterson uh, in putnam county the hudson valley um, has the right conditions for mushroom farming what are the right conditions well generally the right conditions are temperate climate and uh, lots of moisture mushrooms frequently expose themselves and after rainfall and uh, so those those two things so moderate temperature and lots of moisture are good now for steve, steve your farm is located in the finger lakes region near ithaca is that uh, also an area that's good for mushroom farming uh, it is in most years. I'd say this year is a little bit of an exception. It's been uh, abnormally dry in our region, but um, we're still producing well. We're just not seeing the population of wild mushrooms that we usually do out in the woods. But yeah, generally, most of New York State has a favorable climate to find lots of different types of mushrooms, both in the wild and um, and for growing. You're also an agroforestry extension specialist for the, the Cornell Small Farms Program. What's, what's agroforestry? Sure. Agroforestry is a word that combines agriculture uh, with forestry. So mm -hmm. we're looking for um, productive uh, agricultural systems that can be done in combination with trees, whether that's in an existing forest, like with mushrooms or maple syrup, um, or bringing trees out into the field with things like silvopasture, which combines um, grazing animals with trees. In the past, haven't farmers generally cut down forests to create open farmland? Is, is this a new idea? Does it come out of some traditional farming and forest management practices? Yeah, it's ironic because the, the word agroforestry was, was coined in the 70s, but it was really just in response to what's been the last century or so of, you know, sort of industrial agriculture, which is mostly focused on clearing trees out of the way and, and making the way for plow agriculture. Um, but when we look globally at 
indigenous and um, historical and traditional farming practices, um, agroforestry would have just been called farming hundreds of years ago. It really was um, a situation where many people lived in closer relationship to the land and that land often had trees on it. So in my research, I've found examples from pretty much every continent. Agroforestry might actually be one of the more common ways people grow food worldwide. Uh, Steve, are you also growing foods, uh, mushrooms in the woods? Do you have woods on your property? Yeah, our, our property is about half wooded and half uh, pasture, and we do grow shiitakes in the woods, and we do some oyster and lion's mane production as well, um, and we also make maple syrup out of our forest. Oh, so you, uh, uh, in the case of, uh, in Steve's case, Steve, you also have animals, you said, but you write that uh, that mushrooms are absolutely the protein source with the lightest ecological footprint. Well, what does that mean, Steve? Well, um, when we look at uh, mushrooms as a food source, uh, I think folks often think of them as like a vegetable, and they do have a lot of trace minerals and nutrients and things like that, but their structure is actually most closely related to an animal protein, and fungi as a whole are actually pretty closely related to animals in their in their history and their biology when we look at taxonomy and how they're classified. So they're essentially a, a number of really uh, complex proteins that that behave very much like animal proteins. So um, when we think about the land impact of, of animals or of um, growing large fields of soybeans or things like that, when we compare that to the ecological footprint of the impact of growing mushrooms, we can grow many, many more pounds of protein on a much smaller water budget, soil budget, land budget, all those kind of things, energy budget. They use less water and energy to produce? They do, yeah. yeah. Um, the American Mushroom Council uh, came out with a, a report uh, um, a few years ago. They did a life cycle analysis, and these are mostly farms that are down in um, southeastern Pennsylvania. Um, that they were looking at uh, the, the, the button mushroom, the most commonly produced mushroom in the U.S. But um, they came out with a report, looked at the life cycle analysis, and found some pretty substantial um, figures in terms of things. So, like, uh, to produce a, a pound of mushrooms, it only takes uh, 1.8 gallons of water. Um, mm. And for a pound of beef, it can take hundreds and hundreds of gallons of water. And so it's just a remarkable difference when we look at it from that perspective. And they still have a lot of vitamins and antioxidants. So um, mushrooms are, uh, can be good for us, even though they're closer to, to animals. I, I wonder what, what vegans think about all of that. If you say that, that fungi are closer to animals than they are to vegetables. Well, in my experience, a lot of vegans and vegetarians really lean on mushrooms as a, as a protein source. What's different is um, when we eat mushrooms, what we're actually eating is the, it's the fruiting body of the organism itself, the, the fungus, which we call mycelium. Sometimes you see this white fuzzy or thready material in soil or logs or on the ground. Um, or in, when we grow them, we're growing them you know, in logs or on sawdust or things like that. Straw is a common material. That is actually the body of the organism. When we harvest the fruit, we don't actually kill the, the living organism. We just harvest the fruit, just like if you take an apple off of a tree, you don't actually kill the tree, and it comes back and will, will fruit many times over. So shiitake logs that Dimitri and I both manage um, 
we'll get uh, good production for uh, three or four seasons, and then the logs will continue to fruit oftentimes for many years after that when we just leave them out in the woods. So, Dimitri, uh, if uh, fungi aren't vegetables, uh, that means they're not grown like other vegetables by planting seeds in the ground. How do you plant them? Well, basically the way we plant them is we get logs and put the mushroom mycelium into holes that we drill in the logs. Then the logs incubate for some time to fill the log. And at some point, usually during the next season, so it takes a full season of incubation, and during the next season, the mushrooms pop out of the side of the log when they're ready. But do we eat the mycelium or just the, the fruiting body that uh, comes out, that emerges? So just the fruiting body. We pick those, and those are the delicious mushrooms we eat. Now, what about the, the white button mushrooms Steve mentioned that we see in the supermarket? Aren't they grown indoors? Uh, yeah, generally, I believe they're grown indoors on sterilized medium, on giant trays. Uh, but the process is similar in that giant trays of media are inoculated with the mycelium and then the mycelium grows throughout the media and when the fruiting the fruiting bodies come out they're harvested and sent to us sent to supermarkets everywhere uh, Steve so the the ones that are grown from trees and on logs um, should I assume we're talking about shiitakes oyster mushrooms lion's mane portobellos cremini's yeah, all, all but the last few there. So um, uh -huh. the, the actually the, the button mushroom, the cremini, and the portobello, believe it or not, are all the same species. They're just uh -huh. um, fruited at different stages in their life cycle, and they have different colors at those different stages. So those are all grown, as Dimitri mentioned, um, mostly in, in these larger facilities, I believe mostly on, on compost. Um, and And then... When we think about outside, there's a handful of species. I mean, if you walk around the woods, you could come across um, in New York State, like one of 10,000 fruiting mushrooms. There's tons of things out there. When it comes down to what we can reliably cultivate, whether we're talking about as a farmer or just someone in their backyard, there's about six or eight species that you can reliably cultivate. So shiitake being the most common, we have oyster, lion's mane, there's one called wine cap. Uh, there's some others, more obscure ones that you can play with that people have mixed success with. But um, our our extension project has information, guides, and videos and things to help people get started. And we really encourage anyone to try. It's a really easy um, thing to get started with, and you can kind of match the type of mushroom to the type of situation that you might have um, around. So um, it's worth checking out. And uh, when we look at... Uh, small-scale mushroom production outside of that, um, there are some growers who do indoor production as well, and that's often on straw or sawdust. And what they do is they create the conditions, the ideal conditions for those mushrooms to fruit, you know, in things like a high tunnel or a greenhouse or some kind of building that they've created where they can modulate the temperature and humidity, um, which helps extend the season and deal with things when the weather isn't so cooperative. 
What about the uh, some of the uh, varieties that are really highly prized, like chanterelles and morels? Uh, aren't they mostly grown in the wild? Can you cultivate them? Yeah, they. Um, so uh, within all of the different types of mushrooms, mush what mushrooms do is find different types of food uh, to feed off of. So all the ones that are commonly grown, whether outdoors or indoors, are known as decomposing mushrooms. They're ecosystem is really just to break down different types of organic matter back into soil and those are the easiest for us to kind of figure out how to grow things like chanterelles morels truffles these really high-end prized rare mushrooms um, are what are known as mycorrhizal mushrooms so myco means mushroom and rhizal means root and so these are mushrooms that form um, beneficial relationships with plants and with trees and they actually exchange uh, minerals in the soil for the sugars that trees and plants produce through photosynthesis. So all those uh, mushrooms are really fun to find in the wild but they're somewhat tricky to figure out how to cultivate and some people have claimed to do it but it doesn't happen on a on a very wide scale that's for sure. So I kind of like that. I, it, it, it requires me to go out into the woods and know the know the forest and kind of search it's kind of a fun way to do it it's it wouldn't be as much fun if i could just grow everything i wanted to isn't there usually a, a special kind of tree that's near an outgrowth of of uh, chanterelles or morels yeah yeah so so I, you can, you, if you can spot the tree you kind of know whether yep. those are, are mushrooms that you can eat yeah, yeah. I mean, my background is in forestry, and so my understanding of different forest ecosystem types has really helped with mushrooms. Um, oak trees and oak forests and hemlock, these, these types of indicators can be really helpful. And in general, the older the forest, the better, because if those trees are young, they may not have had enough time to establish a, a mycelial basin and a fungal population beneath them. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI, New York 99.5 FM. Uh, and streaming at WBAI.org. My guests are uh, Steve Gabriel of Wellspring Forest Farm and Dimitri Pappas of Hudson Valley Mushrooms, uh, both in New York State. Um, Ken, uh, I, I, I'm throwing this out to both of you. Uh, I, I just don't want you stepping on each other's toes here. But can you take us through the process for growing mushrooms in the woods? If, if, if we have a backyard with trees, uh, can we grow mushrooms in in our backyard? Well, uh, I'll take that one to start. Um, yeah, absolutely you can, and that's how I started. Uh, you basically need to harvest logs the right time of the year, which is before buds come out, and get some equipment to drill holes into the logs. You want your logs generally to be sized so you can pick them up and soak them because that is what triggers fruiting later. But you drill holes in the logs and put the mycelium inside and you can get mycelium. There's a lot of distributors of mycelium who will send you pre-inoculated sawdust that you can put in or wooden dowels that have the mycelium in them and you put them into the log and cover the opening with wax. And then you have to let them sit for a while. That's the tough part that people have trouble with sometimes. You have to let them sit in a, in a fairly humid environment so they don't dry out. And if you can do all that, the next season in the spring or 
maybe throughout the summer, uh, you'll you usually have fruiting. And and they and live off of. Wait, do they do they so they live off of decaying vegetation? That's correct. They're saprotrophic and they digest the organic matter, which is the hardwood log. Now, Steve, can they also be grown on living trees? There's very few mushrooms that <clears throat> grow on living trees. We'd actually call those uh, parasitic mushrooms because they're obviously getting some of their sustenance probably by taking it from the tree. So a lot of the disease fungi out there do that, but they aren't really edible ones. Um, there's some medicinal ones that we might be interested in. Some folks out there may have heard of the mushroom chaga, um, which is really common, a lot of uh, medicinal uses of mushrooms, and that is one that grows on, on dying and uh, sort of dying but still alive birch trees. But by and large, if it's alive, we're not going to find like a really delicious edible mushroom growing. It's usually after that uh, that we might find it. Part of the the problem is uh, if you find mushrooms in the wild, unless you really know what you, you're looking for, you can <laughs> cause yourself some serious damage, can't you? Yeah, there's, you know, there's um, a good resource for folks to check out um, uh, is the North American Mycological Association. They actually keep a database of uh, potential issues with toxicity. It's pretty low. There's, there's a lot of things we do on a daily basis that are much higher risk. But that being said, yeah, going out and not knowing how to properly identify a mushroom is just as dangerous as as doing it with plants or anything else, but um, it's it can be really detrimental. Most mushrooms are neither, it, most mushrooms you find out in the wild are neither poisonous nor are they delicious. They're actually just kind of woody and maybe beautiful to look at, but um, there's just a small handful that really uh, are, are sort of choice edible or medicinal ones, and there's a, there's a handful that are uh, poisonous or might make you feel ill for a few hours, but obviously it's really important to know the difference between those two, and so um, by joining a, a local group, uh, folks can gain that information. It's just like learning a language. You're learning the different characteristics to distinguish one mushroom from the other. And you're learning from people who have that experience and can verify those first mushrooms you find. Um, so that's how we recommend folks go about it. And then there are some magic mushrooms as well. So uh, has anyone explained how this such a wide range of, of mushrooms has developed uh, and are there uh, are they unique to certain areas or do we find pretty much the same mushrooms everywhere it's um there's some like uh, the oyster mushroom um is found on every continent where there's also you know green vegetation mm -hmm. um, other mushrooms the shiitake is actually not um it, it only showed up in north america um, in the last few decades, it's mostly native to parts of Asia, China, China, Korea, Japan is where it's kind of from. So some mushrooms, just like plants, have specific parts of the globe they're associated with, and others are more, you know, sort of ubiquitous across the across geography. Well, when you bring a plant from Asia, uh, it often really thrives because uh, uh, it doesn't have any uh, uh, any. Uh, enemies within the ecology, the local ecology. But uh, would that be true with mushrooms as well? So there'd be certain, <clears throat> within the larger fungal community, there'd be certain um, what are called pathogens usually that we'd be concerned about. But again, shiitake is, 
is just a decomposer of logs. It doesn't have any sort of negative effects from a disease standpoint. And it really is very slow growing and actually doesn't really tend to, um, it, it, it's never been found outside of the log that's been inoculated on. So it's, it's very, um, there's a very low risk and the USDA has, has determined that, they, they determined that back in the 80s that it was a safe species to bring in like many species that have been brought in safely. So it's not, not quite the same as like something that might escape or do, do harm to the landscape, yeah. Uh, Dimitri, what On happens note, after... Yeah, go ahead. On that note, Leonard, uh, what does happen sometimes in the growing when you have shiitake logs growing is other species of fungus that are native will move into that log sometimes because they're a stronger competitor mm-hmm. and more suited to the, to the local environment than shiitake. Mm-hmm. Well, what happens after the logs are inoculated with the spores? Do you put them back into the woods, or can you uh, actually keep them indoors? What kind of conditions well, are necessary? They they like being in the forest, so they like humidity and dew and occasional rain, and uh, they like a high humidity. So generally, people don't keep their houses at at the level of humidity that would be preferred by shiitake. So... Uh, they're usually for on a farm like ours we store our logs stacked up um, sometimes covered with a breathable fabric and generally they just stay outside all the time Um, sometimes we water them during periods of severe drought to keep them moist and during the fruiting season they get moved around a little bit more because to to initiate fruiting we soak them in water to to simulate a heavy rain and then we pull them out and put them on in my in our case we put them on a rack that stands them up and keeps them slightly off the ground uh, which minimizes insects and the mushrooms come out the sides and in about seven to ten days so insects are important. Are there any diseases or pests that you have to watch out for? Well, slugs love mushrooms. So that's, slugs and, and other insects will eat mushrooms. So we try to keep those away as best as we can. I know a couple of human slugs who like mushrooms as well, as I understand. <laughs> uh, um, how can you tell when it's ready to begin producing the fruiting bodies, uh, the, the mushrooms? Is there something that happens naturally, or do you have to do something to to initiate it? Well, so the logs, the mycelium will grow in the log, and you can see evidence of a log getting close to ready to fruit by mycelium hitting the end of the log, and you can actually see the white, uh, the end of the log will turn white or have white spots, and that's usually an indicator that the mycelium has moved from the inoculation site through the log to the end of the log. Usually at that time, you can, you can think about starting to fruit them. To fruit them, we soak them in cold water, and that's what makes them, kind of shocks mm-hmm. them into fruiting. Can you harvest a crop of mushrooms from a log and then immediately begin the process again? Or does a log need to go they through like, a resting period? Yeah, they like a resting period. Uh, we give our mushroom logs about seven week uh, minimum seven-week resting period. That helps them rejuvenate a bit and get ready to, to do it again.
Now, Dimitri, in the uh, the area that your farm is located in, there were a lot of ash trees that have uh, become ill because of some disease that's killing ash trees. Uh, are they still okay to use, or do, do you have to find only healthy trees? Uh, well, generally, uh, ash is not a good candidate for shiitake logs, uh, but uh, oak, which is the other major species that lives in the area, is. And uh, we generally don't take diseased trees, though, because then the shiitake has to compete with whatever that disease organism is. So what we prefer and what we use, basically, is healthy trees that are cut down in the spring, early, early spring, late winter. How many crops of mushrooms can you get from one log in a year? And do you have to start with a fresh log the following year? Or can a log just keep on producing mushrooms for a long time? Yeah, we, we have logs that are a few years old. Um, generally, uh, after three or so years, they stop producing as, uh, as much volume of mushroom as they would in the beginning. Um, but uh, they can last a couple of years if they're handled properly. Part of the part of the reason that they go bad is uh, other mushroom species move in, other fungus species move in, or uh, the bark falls off, which makes them susceptible to drying out. Uh, as the mushroom, as the log gets a few years old, it, it starts to get weak and can crumble and. Uh, the shiitake is doing its job by eating the eating the wood cells and uh, it gets a little soft and weak. So we try to inoculate every year to, to, to have a continuous supply, um, but, but generally they last a couple of years, two, three, maybe four, but after the fourth year they usually get pretty, pretty rough. Steve, how long do you guys keep yours? Generally we cycle them for about three seasons and we can soak them two or three times a season and then um, they tend to be less productive, but um, I always see it as part of the cycle. What mushrooms do in this is they decompose the log, and the log eventually becomes part of the forest again. So we just leave them out in the woods, and it tends to be that over time we see a, another, you know, a few shiitakes pop up here and there, even from logs that are that are pretty old. Um, and we have piles that are eight or ten years old, and it's it's pretty much a pile of soil at this point, which is great. Steve, in your book, you take us through a step-by-step -step process for growing mushrooms on logs. Is it something that anyone with a backyard can try to cultivate uh, for uh, for their own use? Or is, it, is this mostly yeah, may not... commercial growers? No, this is uh, where I got my start. I think most people that, um, I believe Dimitri as well, I think everyone kind of starts just doing a few logs and trying it out and then some say, hey, this is great. I'm going to do more and, and try to make a business. But um, uh, for years, my wife and I, we managed, we had about 20 logs in our backyard. We'd soak a few a week. We'd get about a pound of mushrooms, you know, every week throughout the summer. And that was really our only goal. Um, and you actually don't even really need a backyard. I've had folks take a log uh, into an apartment in New York City and keep it in their bathroom and soak it in their bathtub. <laughs> it works, you know. Um, so ideally what you need is at least a little bit of natural shade outdoors, um, a couple simple tools and, and some time on the weekend or, or after work and you can get this going pretty easily. You have a chart of, of how many logs you would need to grow to feed your own family to make a career of it. Um, so what kinds of numbers are we talking about? 
Well, um, I think in there we we looked we did this research with Cornell for years. My pre- my co-author on that book, Ken Mudge, was who I first started learning from, and we did a lot of research both on the Cornell um, in the in the woods, uh, looking at different uh, production figures, and then we also work with growers all over the Northeast, and I. I see that people's desires for income really vary. Uh, so we have everyone from someone who might manage about uh, 300 to 500 logs, and that might equate to uh, a little bit of side cash, you know, on a weekly basis. Um, mm-hmm. We might have someone do a, th- a lot of folks get into the 1000 to $2,000 range. That's usually part of a diversified farm where they have, you know, multiple other products, but that could bring in, um, five or six thousand dollars a year, and then we—I think the largest farm I know of right now has about um, fifteen thousand logs in production, and that's something that can support several people's salaries for for a year-round basis. So, um, it's—it can be scaled anywhere from one log up to you know tens of thousands, really depending on on the goals of the producer. And do the producers tend to focus on just one or two kinds of mushrooms, or do they try to? Uh, grow as many different varieties as they can. I think everyone and and markets really want as many varieties that are possible. So some folks, if you want to just do the outdoor only, um, shiitake tends to be the best one that you can reliably produce. And then you can try some of the others. And when they fruit, if you have, you know, a farmer's market stand or a chef that likes to buy from you, we've never had a problem selling those. you know, on the side, but they're they're not going to produce the same kind of weekly yields. Um, where you get the additional kind of um, consistent production is really with indoor production. So our our farm is actually a hybrid system where we do the shiitake logs outside. We produce uh, oyster mushrooms uh, and and lion's mane mostly uh, in an indoor system, and then we also do some wild foraging as well. And and you know, in a good year, this year hasn't been the best, but in a good year, that's that's another way that we can bring mushrooms to market. Um, so it really depends again on what kind of combination, what kind of environments you want to manage, and how you want to interact. But we do know folks who just solely use the shiitake logs as as their enterprise, and that works just fine. Dimitri, you describe your farm, Hudson Valley Mushrooms, as a micro farm. So, how many acres is it? Well, we have two acres here, uh, and about a little more than half of that is woods. So we use that so, so for that's our pretty small. Yard. That's pretty small. small, and many, many, uh, uh, many of the uh, the towns, the the villages in uh, the the Hudson Valley uh, have uh, five acre limits. Uh, you you can't have a smaller place than than that. But you, you, your two acres is almost like a you could have a house just down the road, right? <laughs> That's true. That's absolutely right. Uh, we uh, we have two soaking areas and uh, currently manage about 150 logs, and we're going to bring another 350 online in the spring of 2021. So, do you also just grow tomatoes for yourself <laughs> and and peppers <laughs> and stuff, carrots? Yes, we do, and cucumbers and kale. <laughs> this is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. We're streaming at WBAI.org. Stay with us.
We're back with our guest, Dimitri Pappas of Hudson Valley Mushrooms in Patterson, New York, and Steve Gabriel of Wellspring Forest Farm. He's also, uh, that's in Mecklenburg, New York. He's also the co-author of a book uh, that was published some years back called Farming the Woods, an Integrated Permaculture Approach to Growing Food and Medicinals in Temperate Forests. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure many people are intrigued by that title uh, because, uh, but, but are, are people growing mushrooms also for medicinal purposes? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, that's probably arguably maybe the biggest uh, growth sector in, in the last five years. It's just exploded as people are looking to more natural ways to, um, to, keep their immunity strong and, and to treat different things. So we get a ton of questions at extension and also through the farm about the medicinal properties um, of mushrooms and how you can use them. And um, I, as a starting point, I tell people to think of it as a, an, an herbal supplement, sort of like you might work with some different plants. Um, but it's important to work with someone who, who is familiar with them and can give you a good recommendation for dosage. There's also a lot of variability in the products that are out there, depending on what they're, where they're coming from, what they're made of, um, and the value you're getting. So, so it's a buyer beware market. It's not as well defined as something that might be more medicated uh, or, or regulated. So um, we see the medicinal market uh, being a really interesting one, a really important one, I think, but one that people need to, to really dig into the nuances of as they learn more. Well, most of the mushrooms that I like to cook with, uh, I'm uh, doing for flavor. Am I also getting some medicinal value? <laughs> or are there special varieties mm -hmm. of mushrooms that I, would only, uh, that I would only grow or buy for medicinal reasons? Sure. It's kind of both ends. So um, a lot of the common mushrooms that we consume offer us a lot of um, you know, nutritive value, like vitamin D is one thing that all mushrooms have that is something that we don't find in a lot of other foods. It's hard to find it in many things. Um, you know, seafood is another common source of it. Um, Milk. And so that can be really important. Uh, and, and eating fresh mushrooms, you know, sort of on a regular basis does have uh, benefits to your immune system. It generally, uh, all the species help sort of support immune system health help give it a boost when it needs it, helps slow down your immune system when it's a little overactive. And so that's, that's called adaptogenic is, the, is one of the phrases used to describe that quality. When you start to talk about things like um, antiviral properties, anti-cancer properties, um, any of these kind of things, usually those are referring to extracts from mushrooms, meaning we take the mushrooms and, um, and somehow extract those medicinal properties. Most traditionally and most commonly would be through a combination of hot water and usually high proof alcohol extraction and those turn into tinctures and those tinctures can be used but um, other parts of the world are much further along in this so in Japan there's actually an extract from the shiitake mushroom that is used routinely as an adjunct to chemotherapy and the reason is because mm. the shiitake can help chemotherapy patients recover from the sort of intensity of that of that type of treatment. So um, maybe someday we'll be there, but for right now it's kind of um, in the home remedy or, or folk remedy realm uh, at this point. But there's plenty of research to show that there's really well documented, but almost species I've come across, but shiitake, oyster, 
Um, the lion's mane is known as the is the memory mushroom. It has a lot of benefits to um, to brain function and has been shown to be effective in treating MS and Alzheimer's and things like that. So some pretty remarkable things as you dig into the nuances with different species and, and different ailments. It's amazing that uh, we don't see ads for them the way we see ads for Prevagen, <laughs> which... Uh, has a claims it's special ingredient comes from jellyfish but anyway um dimitri how do you market your mushrooms you have a as you pointed out a, a small farm but you're selling mushrooms um it, do you go to farmers markets or do you have a csa yeah we have a small csa that we just started this year uh and it's been very very successful for us uh, we also market through social media and, and through word of mouth, we get a lot of word of mouth feedback, good positive feedback from people who try our mushrooms. So those are, those are the main ways. And people don't just come to your farm and say, I want to buy stuff or uh, are there restaurants that uh, uh, buy from you? Uh, no restaurants currently, but we do sell to local, a local bakery and uh, mostly just direct to consumers. Now, Steve, at your farm, in addition to mushrooms, you are also raising sheep and ducks and, and growing sugar maple trees. So you obviously have a little more than two acres to work with. Uh, but how did you wind up with this particular nation? Um, well, sort of, it's one thing leads to another, I guess, is the, is the short answer. I started off in producing maple syrup and... Um, from there, uh, we were thinning the, the maple woods. It's a really important practice when you make maple syrup to thin the trees and make sure that your healthiest trees are, are the ones you're, you're taking sap from because if you don't do that, it can cause damage long-term. So we were thinning the woods and those logs turned into mushroom logs and um, and that's how we first you know kind of added that thing on. And then we actually got ducks because we uh, had a slug problem. Like, like Dimitri mentioned, it's really common and we thought maybe ducks would help us kind of knock them back because they, they like slugs, um, unlike myself. And um, so, you know, it's, for us, one thing leads to another. And, and it's been a process of thinking about those connections between different farm systems and, and also paying attention to what's appropriate for the land. So we brought sheep onto the farm. We manage about 30 acres. And for that size and for the sloping land and the wet spots that we have and things like that, we decided that sheep were really appropriate animal versus um, previously I'd managed, you know, cows and, and grazing animals like much larger. But um, it's it's partially a process of uh, of listening to the land. It's partially a process of finding the markets, um, what kind of things people are interested in supporting. And, and it's partially what we're interested in doing at the end of the day. So that's for us, the intersection of those is how we've kind of developed the farm. Well, many people are concerned about the methane that we get from beef, for example, but those beef are in feedlots. Uh, I've read that when beef are just allowed to roam on a farm, or uh, in the old days, it used to be the buffalo and, and the bison in, the, in the, uh, the, the, the middle of this country. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there was a policy of killing them off so that the Native Americans wouldn't have uh, any food supply. Uh, and that's led to, a, to desertification. That led to the Dust Bowl, the creation of the Dust Bowl. So aren't, don't animals uh, work well uh, on farms that are, that are planting crops? 
They can. I think, the, you know, it's always, it depends. And the key things are that the animals are, as you mentioned, not in a feedlot. They're out on pasture. Uh, those animals, should, whatever animal it is, should be on a rotation, meaning they're moved onto one part of the land and then removed and excluded so that the land can rest and, and grow back the vegetation that's there. Um, we re-rotate our sheep every single day. They visit different parts of the land, um, you know, multiple times a season, but we allow the land to, to regenerate in between those grazing um, events. And we're actually building carbon in the soil over time. Um, grazing systems tend to <clears throat> have a reduction in methane outputs, and there's other ways you can kind of work with that. We feed, uh, we actually feed willow trees to our sheep, which is another way that they can reduce their methane. It, it helps um, it helps sort of balance their digestion, and that's one of the, the, the reasons when animals are in a, a feedlot, they're often fed grain, and the grain and their their digestion having a hard time sort of digesting that is often what really you know leads to excess methane being released. So by putting animals in their natural environment, rotating them, uh, feeding them a diversity of foods, you can really reduce that impact, and I think have a really positive impact um, locally and and globally. In your book, Farming the Woods, you write about many other plants that can be grown in the woods, like fruit and nut trees and medicinal plants, like ginseng. Uh, have you been experimenting with some of them? Yeah, we have over time. We, we, um, we've maintained some, some plantings both at, the, at Cornell as well as, um, as on the farm. Uh, on the farm over time, we, we kind of winnow down what we focus on because time is always very precious. But... Um, but through Cornell research work, we've, we've played with a lot of different things. Some of my um, uh, colleagues focus exclusively on ginseng, especially um, in the Catskill region, where there's a lot of interest and in the climate's really ideal for it. Um, ginseng is a really interesting plant, and I think a lot of people get attracted to it because it has a very high price tag. It's often uh, 3 to 6 to even $800 a pound. Um, but it's a much harder plant to grow than people realize. It takes about seven to ten years to get a good uh, root system developed, and and in that process, you can run across all sorts of challenges, including you know deer, mice, insects, fungal diseases, um, and even poachers. This is a crop that actually has sought so much value. There's even been people. Um, you know, needing to defend it from others taking it. So it's a very, I think it's the only forest farm crop I know that actually has has uh, created a few reality TV shows. There's a couple <laughs> of ginseng shows. So it has its own kind of unique history in place. But but if you can get it going, you can certainly make a good uh, good healthy return um, if you're if you're patient enough. <laughs> now you're also a co-founder of the Finger Lakes Permaculture Institute. What does that organization do? And uh, what, what is permaculture? What does it mean? Sure. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm actually not on the board of that organization anymore, but it is still active and going. And I think, um, uh, broadly speaking, permaculture is one of many different ways to look at um, supporting land stewardship, uh, combining people's use of the land with restoration activities and. So the Finger Lakes Permaculture Institute traditionally did a number of educational events. Um, now is really focused on an annual uh, tour. This year it was online like many other things, but um, learning from different uh, practitioners, visiting different sites and learning how people are, you know, developing anything from a small garden to 
to an urban uh, community garden to something in their backyard to a, a larger farm and, and how ecological principles are being um, are being applied. And I, so broadly speaking, I would think of permaculture as just using, um, using nature as the guidepost. So really thinking about how ecology can be driving the ways that we farm and garden. Would you like to see food production in this country move away from large agribusiness and back to small family farms? Is, is that a realistic possibility? And uh, I just saw an article, and I think it was in the Times, that suggests that uh, eating local is better because we don't wind up with some of the, the serious problems that we have seen when uh, agriculture has moved from large farms in California across the country and people wind up uh, well, getting sick and in some cases dying. Yeah, I guess in my in my opinion, absolutely. I mean, my I, uh, my grandparents had a farm in in Midwestern Illinois, um, and then before before they kind of got out of farming, you know, it was very feasible to raise a family uh, with a few acres of grain crops, and they had a garden. They had every animal. They raised most of their own food, or they traded it with their neighbors. And that wasn't really too long ago that that was really common. Um, there's just been a major shift in the last, you know, 50, 75 years away from that. And the pressure on farmers today is to, is to often produce one crop at a, you know, at a high volume and you get a low price for it. Um, so in New York state, most families who are dairy families used to be able to make a living on milking 30 to 50 cows. But now a profitable dairy, they say is, is hundreds or thousands of animals. Um, so it's going to take a shift in the way um, consumers support farms and farm products that, that equates to probably a bit higher price than people are used to for some things. Um, it equates to getting to know the farmers and really supporting people who are doing the work on a day-to-day basis on the land that, that uh, aligns with your values. And so I think there's a, a new local foods movement that's really been burgeoning over the last 10 years. And um, if you can know the name of your farm, know the name of your farmer, I think you're on the right track is kind of how we, we like to frame it. So I, I do think it's the future, um, and I think it's an important way for all of us to sort of support um, good land use, um, you know, and, and good food that's, that's good for us and good for our families. We only have a few more minutes left, so um, maybe we can get back to mushrooms for a moment. Dimitri, your website, HudsonValleyMushrooms.com, also gives lots of recipes for cooking mushrooms. Do you have uh, any specific favorites? Yeah, we uh, we eat a as you would imagine, Leonard. We eat a lot of mushrooms here, and uh, we like uh, mushroom risotto, and we mm. use mushrooms a lot in um, uh, Vietnamese boon, and we make ramen here. But we also use them for breakfast, uh, fried in garlic, olive oil. Uh, sometimes on an omelet, in an omelet, or sometimes uh, on like a avocado toasty type setup. Um, one of the things we like is some days we go beetless, and mushrooms provide a nice substitute mm. uh, that's filling and 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 very umami. And it often tastes like meat. <laughs> At least some mushrooms have a kind of a meaty flavor. Uh, Steve, your it website does. is. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so sometimes that depends on how long you cook them, too. But I think generally a lot of people feel like mushrooms are a good meat substitute. Uh, Steve, your website is wellspringforestfarm.com. Uh, do you also uh, – what, what do you put on, on your website? 
other than all the other activities you do. You have a school, you do consulting work, you have a yurt B&B. You have one minute. <laughs> yeah, we have a lot of things going on, so the website's a great place to check out those things. Um, I also mentioned the Cornell Extension website, which is just cornellmushrooms.org, mm. or you could Google Cornell Mushrooms. That's where my part-time work with Cornell, we do all the resource building around research, and we publish fact sheets and guidebooks to help people get started in mushroom growing, so you can check that out. I want to thank both of my guests for... Uh, a really illuminating hour. Dimitri Pappas, he has uh, the Hudson Valley Mushroom Farm uh, in Patterson, New York. Uh, and Steve Gabriel, his is Wellspring Forest Farm in Mecklenburg, New York. Steve is also the co-author of a number of books. Uh, the one uh, that is most appropriate to this conversation is Farming the Woods, an Integrated Permaculture Approach to Growing Food and Medicinals in Temperate Forests. It's been a great pleasure talking with both of you. Thank you, Leonard. Thanks. And, and that uh, brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn, who produced today's interview, and to live engineer Reggie Johnson and my executive producer Jesse Lent for all of their work throughout the week. And a special thanks to Catherine Davis, who engineered Monday's show. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes and anywhere else podcasts are available. And, and you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If there's anything that you'd like to tell me about today's show or any of our past shows, or if you just want to say hello, you can reach me by email at LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. Now, before I sign off today, I uh, would like to take just a few minutes to ask you for your support for this station. If you care about Leonard Lopez at Large and all of the other great programs on WBAI, we need your help to keep this whole thing going. So please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with by visiting our website, give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two, WBAI.org. Or by calling 516-620-3602 right now to keep the unique in-depth content that we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. To, to be completely honest, we need your help to get back on our feet after this pandemic has made our financial situation quite tenuous. People who um, have been very generous in the past suddenly find themselves um, strapped for cash. Uh, so we need everyone who tunes into Leonard Lopez at Large and is financially able to step up right now by going to that website. Again, it's give to WBAI.org, or you can call. 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. And, uh, and help keep this show and this station on the air. And one really great way to support WBAI uh, without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. And uh, BAI buddies are listeners who contribute $10 or more each month, 10, 15, 20, whatever uh, they're comfortable with to keep the station running 
uh, and to show their support for what we do on this show. Uh, and it's really important for BAI because it it uh, means that we have cash flow. We don't have to worry each month about uh, getting starting from scratch. But um, but the, the other the other situation here is that uh, we're, we are starting from scratch in an odd way because we don't take money from foundations. We don't take them from advertisers. Most public broadcasters run what you might really call ads, although they uh, they call them funding credits and other things. We don't take any of that. We rely totally on our listeners for uh, our support. Um, and we have over the 60 years that WBAI has been uh, a, a uh, listener-sponsored station. It started as a commercial station um, and then was given to the Pacifica Foundation in 1960. And we've been here all these years since uh, through thick and thin uh, and always relying on our listeners to come through for us. We've done a pretty good job over the years, but it's tough right now. Whatever level you're comfortable donating in uh, at the, the important thing is that you do so right now so that we can continue to bring these long-form interviews on topics that we hope are of interest to you. And, and please be sure to make that contribution in the, uh, the name of Leonard Lopate at large. Uh, big thanks to all of you who have already stepped up to support the show and the station, but we, because we are 100% reliant on the generosity of listeners like you. So if you haven't already, why not make that call? Again, it's 516-620-3602 or go to give to wbai.org. Um, give us uh, any show of support you can, or um, it'd be great if you became a BAI buddy. Um, now, uh, BAI uh, is, is independent media, not like uh, other stations. Uh, we don't have to say, as, uh, as they have to say on NPR sometimes, um, Facebook uh, is a contributor to WBAI. Well, I, I guess we would take Facebook's money. But right now, we are very happy that we have loyal listeners who have come through for us over the years. One last time, the number to call is 516-620-3602. You can go to give to WBAI.org. That's give and then the number two wbai.org. Um, please make sure to make that call right now. we got a great bunch of guests lined up for you in the coming weeks, but we can only keep going with your help. So we're counting on you. We're off on Monday for the Labor Day holiday, but I hope you can join us again on Tuesday when I'll be speaking with activist Sean King, whose new book, Make Change, How to Fight Injustice, Dismantle Systemic Oppression, and Own Our Future is part memoir, part instruction manual for how to make lasting systemic change. Have a great holiday weekend.